Uh, and so I, I, I really applaud you for putting that video up uh, because I watched it a couple of times already. Awesome. All right. Well, we are live, rocking and rolling now on Facebook. Uh, we just started the class. Juan, we see you there. And so what we want to do now is open up with prayer and then get right into the class. Uh, we will always have 15 minutes before class, before we get started to hang out, and then 15 minutes after class. So those who come at uh, 8 o'clock, please don't feel left out if we have to get things going. Uh, since we just had Daryl uh, started us off uh, with some discussion there. Daryl, would you now start us off with prayer, please? Yes. Uh, thank you, Lord, for today, God. I thank you for waking us up this morning and, and allowing us to come to this class. Uh, thank you, God. This is our first uh, MPI 301 presuppositional apologetics class, God. This is all going to glorify you, God. This is for your kingdom and for your glory, Lord. Uh, we are all here to ensure that we understand uh, the knowledge and the spirit that you've given us uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. And we are ready to be on the front lines for you, God, in the battlefield for you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray that the, uh, that the lesson gets taught well, that all ears are open, all minds are open to your word and are receptive to the knowledge and the, and the lesson that is brought forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Yes, sir. So basically what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to meet here for the next 12 weeks. Each week, the class is going to be from 8 to 9.30 p.m. our time, Central Standard. We will be going live over the What Do You Believe, uh, TV, uh, what do you believe Facebook page. So it will be recorded there for future reference. And then it will be put up on our app that can be found at any app store under our church's name, Metro Praise International, as well as iTunes under our church's name, Metro Praise International. And all people have to do is look for is 301, 301. And we hope to do many more of these classes. This is the first of its kind. And so basically my wife and I, we started the church uh, quite uh, a bit ago, about 12 years ago, to make disciples. That was our goal. That would make disciples loving God and loving people. And so we had a strategy of 101 and 201. And through those strategies of discipleship, we always had a goal that one day we would get to 301. And so 301 is what this is right here. It's for those who have graduated from our discipleship uh, courses. 101 is done one-on-one. -on -one. The 201 is done in a classroom setting. And then we graduate deacons, which we would call servant leaders. And then elders become, uh, someone can become an elder after being a deacon. And those are primarily the ones who lead our ministries and life groups. And then we have various kinds of elders like pastoral elders that serve in the ministry. Well, what's exciting about this is now our church has about uh, 50 elders and deacons. And right about at this time, we got to the point where the interest grew enough to where I could teach a 301 class for the elders and deacons. But like always, we want to give it away for free. We want to make our church a resource for people to be able to grow and uh, be disciples as well. So whether they're in the church and they want to join in with us, they can always join in with us live on Tuesdays for the next 12 weeks, 8 to 9.30, or if they're anywhere around the country. Now, this is our gift to the body of Christ, and it makes us unique because these are the kinds of things 
that other ministries would charge for. These were to be the things that uh, they would have to pay for or to pay to join online, just to watch or pay to be a part of. But in my mind as a pastor, I think to myself, whatever I have been freely given, I want to freely give. And that's why I want to give it away because the gospel is free and I want to give it back to the people. And, and these students here who people, you guys, uh, those who join us live will be able to see are our elders and deacons. And they've given so much to the church, almost with a tear going down my eye. If there's anything I could do for them, I certainly would. And this is the least of what I could do. So I was actually wanting to do this a, a while back, maybe about a year ago, because I saw us getting to, to be close to 50 in elders and deacons, but it wasn't the right time, wasn't enough interest. I wanted at least at least five students to start, and uh, here we are now with, with more than that. Uh, we're at uh, about one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, eight, if everybody comes. Okay, so let's look at the syllabus, and uh, let's look at what this course is going to be about. What I'll do now is just uh, share it full screen so you guys can see it. And pretty much the, the, the way that the class will go is the first hour will pretty much be uh, lecture and discussion. I will be stopping throughout that time to give you guys an opportunity to ask questions if you have any. Uh, but it will usually be the last half hour where the questions uh, will be all, uh, all directed towards discussion all that time at that point. But, but certainly I want to give you guys time to have uh, feedback along the way. And then, like I said before, I, as a privilege for you guys, and as an, I take it as an honor to, to meet with you guys, I will always come 15 minutes before class and 15 minutes after class. So here is our syllabus. The course description for the presuppositional apologetics class is this. This course will study presuppositional apologetics to be a better witness for Jesus Christ. The textbook used will bring to light the presuppositional method, which is most important parts. The student will learn how to know why, uh, what they believe as a Christian is true and how to share the faulty assumptions, how to show the faulty assumptions of those without a biblical worldview. Let me read this one more time. The student will learn how to know what they believe as a Christian is true and how to show the faulty assumptions of those without a biblical worldview. So I want you to know the reason why you believe what you believe, how it's true, like what happened in creation that gave us such knowledge, what did Jesus do for us to give us such knowledge, etc. the Bible, how does this knowledge come to us? And then I want you to know how to show the faulty assumptions of the world around us, not just atheists and agnostics, though a lot of what we learn in this class will touch on those uh, worldviews, but uh, even the other theistic worldviews like Islam, uh, maybe Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, et cetera. Uh, the course goals will be for the student to be able to demonstrate an understanding of the presuppositional apologetic approach. So I want you to be able to understand that approach and be able to use it to master, number two, the basic understanding of confronting non-biblical worldviews. So that will be a lot of what you hear about is how we view the world is called a worldview, how we take in that information and see the world around us, how we take in information rather than how we see the world around us as a worldview. And so we want to be able to say it is God's worldview and then it's everything else. And we want you to be able to confront everything else with God's worldview, the Bible's worldview. 
Number three, the student will begin the process of integrating the presuppositional approach in their ministry to unbelievers. So now I know that those of you here are going to do this because you are uh, elders and deacons in our church. You are those who preach the gospel. You are those who are part of small groups. You are leading and doing ministry. You have 101ers with you, disciples that are learning from you. And so we want you to apply this in your ministry. And then number four under course goals, the student will be able to integrate, integrate multiple biblical texts into the presuppositional approach. So we want you to be able to see the Bible through the lens of the Christian worldview and to see how it works with presuppositional apologetics, the Bible being your foundation and how you build uh, your ministry from there with the text of the Bible. So this is not just philosophy. Philosophy means the love of knowledge, or the love of wisdom. Philo is love. Sophie is uh, wisdom, the love of wisdom, which is wonderful. And all wisdom comes from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the Bible says. So there's nothing in philosophy, just like there's nothing in science or logic or morality that's ever going to threaten the Christian worldview. But we want to understand what is the foundation for philosophy? What is the foundation for uh, ethics and morality? What is the foundation for logic and science? Uh, the required textbook, our only one for this class, is basically John Frame's book, on apologetics, a justification of Christian belief. Now, I have the Kindle version, and as I post in the notes, you'll see that uh, the Kindle version will sometimes give me pages and location. For some reason in our notes today, it doesn't give me page number for the foreword and introduction, but once I got past that, it started putting page numbers there, just in case you have a, a paperback or hardback book. Uh, the course requirements and expectations are simple. I have a working con a computer, uh, in our phone to join us online. And, and I see uh, Juan in his car. Just make sure you're safe and you have your eyes on the road if you're ever driving. Uh, attendance, give a two-week notice to the class leader. Now, this is important to know the class leader is uh, Daryl. So those of you who ever are going to miss class, give us a two-weeks notice. And if you're sick or cannot do it due to work, just let him know as soon as possible. And uh, he'll always put up the attendance on our Facebook post for the day. So today we have a Facebook post on our group page that if you want me to put up more links there for you, things that I don't have in my notes or questions, you can put it up there. But feel free to also ask questions through Zoom software and to chat with each other. Uh, class participation, I do expect you to come ready to dialogue in class with the reading assignment done ahead of time to speak loud and clear for all to hear. And uh, if you don't know, just say you don't know, and that will make the class go faster instead of just rambling. Uh, and I think we'll have great discussion. Uh, you're expected to read the, the assignments before every class. And basically, we're just going to go one chapter at a time in this book. So really easy, just one chapter at a time. Read it throughout the week. You have seven days. There is no homework. There is no outside assignments. Uh, from time to time, I'll post things on the page just to have you guys read if, if you want what we say in French, Lanyap. You know, I used to live in New Orleans, Cajones down there, Lanyap. I'll give you a little something extra, but it won't be required. And then outside work, if I ever give you a thing that I say, I need you to watch this, otherwise the next week's lesson won't make any sense, uh, do it. But other than that, I don't even see that coming up. Uh, but if I did uh, say, please, please watch this, I beg of you, I would want you to do it. Uh, if you just look at the course schedule, 
You see all 12 weeks, starting with today, the introduction to the class, which is going to be awesome. The book provided a lot of good content and the foreword and introduction. And that's what we'll be talking about today, kind of setting it up. And then afterwards, we'll like, like I said, go one chapter at a time. So now you know your reading assignment. So for July 18th, be chapter one, the next week, chapter two, onward, and so forth. Okay, so I can stop right here. Is there any questions from uh, the students um, that you guys may have? No, I'm, I'm good on everything. Everything makes sense so far. Awesome. Anybody else? Maybe feedback? Does it all come through clear to you guys? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's pretty understandable. Sweet. Okay. Well, I'll just keep going then. Well, let's open up our notes for today. Week one, introduction to class and some related videos. Have it there on PDF for you guys on, the, uh, on our group page. What we want to do now is kind of get a basic overview of what apologetics is. Many times when people hear the word apologetics, they think of the word apology, and then they think of saying, I am sorry. Uh, that's a confusion between English words and Greek words. Apologia in the Greek actually means an argument or a defense. And that's where we get the word apologetics from. So what we're going to learn is the defense of the faith. That's the simple definition for the word apologetics. Now, let me give you uh, some of the main scriptures of the Bible that teach us to do apologetics, to give arguments for our faith, to give a defense for the faith. So what I'm going to do is open up my Logos Bible software. There are free versions to use if you guys ever want to get it. It's a great software that I recommend. I have a, a program or a, uh, a subscription I've paid $80 for, for like basically two years, about $1,600. I have about 1,300 resources and uh, it really serves me well as a pastor. And that's the privilege that I have as a pastor. And uh, if you ever need any help with software, let me know and I can give you some recommendations. But they have good packages at Logos Bible Software if you want to take your study to the next level. Blue Letter Bible is free online. And Olive Tree is another free one to get you started. But uh, Logos has some free stuff. And then you can maybe look more into that if you want to uh, get more of the paid books. Okay, Proverbs 26, 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, it sounds like there's a contradiction there, but it's not. Let's think through it. Do we answer a fool or not answer a fool? Is, is he contradicting? No. What the Bible is teaching us is there's two kinds of fools. There's a fool you don't want to throw your pearls to, the Bible says. Otherwise, they'll trample on you. They'll trample on the pearls and turn on you. Other kinds of fools, like Jesus with the Pharisees, you need to rebuke, you need to correct. And so when we start off in the discussion of apologetics, the Bible is going to say these kinds of words as like they're fools. You know, if they disbelieve in God or if they reject the, the testimony, they're foolish or they're fools. And we don't want to think that this is something that's putting down their intelligence. It's not saying they can't do math or they can't uh, build a house or do something productive in society. It's just God's way of saying 
Because they have rejected his truth, they are acting foolish. They are a fool to do so. Uh, God is God. He created us. We're not. We should say yes and amen. And so doing apologetics is looking for the kind of fool that God can use us to open their eyes, preach the gospel to, and see be saved. Uh, Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, they suppress the truth. So according to the Bible, everyone has enough truth to reach out to the God of creation through their conscience or through the creation. They have enough truth to reach out. And we see this in a book like uh, Eternity in Their Heart. Uh, by Cyril Richards, I believe, Eternity in Their Heart. And it talks about missionaries coming to unreached people who had a witness of the gospel or a pre-missionary preparation done by their dreams and visions because they had already rejected polytheism, started reaching out to a singular monotheistic God, rejected the pagan traditions of their culture, and then God sent them these missionaries to give them the fullness of his word. So, Let's keep going. It says, uh, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now watch this, verse 20, for since creation, since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, this is going to be a key to understanding presuppositional apologetics, that truly we're never really speaking to an atheist. We're speaking to a God suppressor. We're never really speaking to someone that hasn't been told the truth enough to be held responsible for it. Now, let's keep going. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is where we see the pagan cultures and where they came from. So when someone says, what about the people in the jungle or what about those who never heard about God? Listen, according to the Bible, there has never been a time where people have not known about the God of creation and if they came into the if they came through a culture were born into a pagan culture it's only because their ancestors forgot the truth of Noah his three his three sons Seth Shem Ham and Japheth Shem Ham and Japheth and they turned towards paganism the people of India turned away from the truth that was given to them, the people of Africa, the people of Rome, of, of Greece, whatever. Men and women turned from the truth because it was being handed down, think about that, from the time of Noah. And although, verse 22, they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a human, uh, look like mortal human beings and birds, animals, and reptiles. And think about this even today. People are doing this by worshiping themselves even with body transformations, turning themselves into women, men turning themselves into women, uh, men turning themselves into women, men turning, women turning themselves into men, sorry. And then you see some people trying to become reptiles. Uh, you see this craziness. And then you see idolatry of, of, of sports and entertainment, money. They have traded the creation 
uh, they have traded the creator for the creation. Okay, now this is all why we're doing apologetics. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So if someone says there is no God, is the first thing we're going to present to them is evidence and proof for God? No. The first thing we're going to do is rebuke them for their folly. We're going to show them the folly of their position, how they're going against their own conscience, how they're suppressing truth. If someone says, I worship this God of India, or I believe Muhammad is a prophet, we're going to confront and demolish the argument and show them the truth. From atheism to Muslim, uh, we're going to show people the truth of the Christian faith. And getting here... Um, to 1 Corinthians 3.19, it gets a little bit more specific. Look at this. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So all of the so-called wisdom that is not lined up with the Christian worldview is foolishness to God. And it can even be demonic as well, led by demons, the Bible says. So we love the people, but we tear down the philosophies and the wisdom that they have. We love Muslims, but we tear down that belief system. We love uh, Hindus, but we tear down that belief. It's foolishness in the sight of God. Worshiping things is foolishness. Worshiping a superstar, worshiping yourself, foolishness. As it is written, talking about what God does here. He's wrote this before in the past. Where does this come from? I have here in Job 5.13. He has written this. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the Thoughts of the wise are futile. He knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Psalm 1411. That's what Paul is quoting there. Okay. Now, let's go to the most famous one, which is 1 Peter 314, which is where we actually see uh, the word apologia from 315, rather, 1 Peter 315. But in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer is the word apologia. There in this tense, it's apologion, but it comes from the root word apologia. There you can see it right there, and it means the defense of what we believe. So always be ready to give an answer to everyone. Be ready to give an answer to who? Everyone to Muslims, to Hindus, to atheists, to the Jewish people who still don't accept the Messiah. Everyone we should be ready to do apologetics with. We love them and have compassion on them, but we understand that their arguments that they try to exalt above the gospel are foolish in God's eyes and need to be demolished. The arguments need to be demolished, not the people. We love the people but we tear down the arguments, even of Roman Catholicism, of works-based salvation of the cults. Always be prepared to make a defense, to give an answer to everyone who seeks or asks you to give a reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So that's where we get the word apologia from. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, says we have, uh, excuse me, uh, go up to verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish what? Strongholds. Where are these strongholds? They're in the mind. They're in the folly of the unbeliever. I hope you get that now, right? And so we're praying that God gives us open doors to speak to them because we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, Paul goes on to discuss this in the area of church discipline, but it gives us a clear understanding of how we are to do apologetics. So once again, looking at the notes, we get a pretty good understanding here of what we're supposed to do in apologetics. It is a defense of the Christian faith, and it's going to come from the scriptures. Now, I'm going to give you now a lot of these uh, definitions from the book. They have their uh, so sites here at the end, location 764 at the point eight. But let me run through them quickly because here's a lot of uh, uh, what our book quotes uh, from other people and even himself to give a more robust definition of apologetics, okay? Apologetics has been defined as that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. Another way of saying it, developing one's authentic self so as to present one's faith as helpfully as possible to one's neighbor. I think that's good, right? Maybe I'll ask you at the end which one of these is your favorite. The demonstration that Christianity is reasonable and thus, A, to assure Christians that their faith is not idiotic, we're not foolish, and B, to clear away the obstacles and objections that keep non-believers from considering the arguments and evidence for the truth of Christianity. The next one, the discipline that deals with the rational defense of Christian faith. Onward, the text of defending and commending the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Christ-like, context-sensitive, and audience-specific manner. Man, that might, that might be somebody's fair. That's a good one. Number six, the business of engaging the worldviews of the day intelligently and thus bearing witness to Christ with credibility. Number seven, the discipline that teaches Christians how to give a reason for their hope. And lastly, apologetics is also application of Scripture to unbelief. So those are the ones the book gives us to help us to understand how we're going to do apologetics. So let me just stop right here and see, is there any questions that uh, you guys have about just the broad definition of apologetics. Next section I'm getting right into is presuppositional apologetics. But feel free to talk right here if you have any questions or comments. Anybody? Otherwise, I'll keep running through them. Wonderful. Rachel, thank you for joining us. We're looking at our notes. We've already gone through the syllabus, and now we're on point number two of our notes. Okay, presuppositional apologetics. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Apologetics, as we'll learn further in the book, has three main categories. The classic approach, the evidential approach, and the presuppositional approach. The classic approach is like those of Thomas Aquinas and those of... Uh, the really the majority of Christian history as we would know it. And these were the ones who would start off defending the faith by talking to the pagans or the Jews, by finding common ground, 
and then going from a generic God, a generic sense of truth to the specific Christian God. And this is not wrong to do. I just believe in our culture, presuppositional apologetics is a stronger way to do it. But uh, what we would call the classic approach is named because of that, because it has been the longest standing approach of how the church has pretty much done apologetics. Now, think of it this way. You probably have done all three of these, but which one do you find yourself doing more of? My guess would be as we learn more about presuppositional apologetics, you'll find yourself more in this area. So uh, you'll learn about those in the presuppositional apologetic movement. They're called presupps as a nickname. We're a presupp. Uh, they can be very sassy at times. Some of them come from a Calvinistic background, and Calvinists have been known to be sassy. And, uh, and so they'll kind of maybe put down those who do the classic approach or the evidential approach, which is basically evidential approaches, just coming with evidence, saying, let me give you the best evidence I have for my God. You bring me the best evidence you have for your God, and we'll go from there. Uh, you do see some of this in the Bible with Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and after it was proven true, the prophets were put to death. But um, what you'll see with the classic approach is it's been more of church history, and evidentialism has caught on just maybe in the last hundred years as we tried to fight against rationalism. And then sometimes people will blend those approaches. But presuppositional apologetics, I think, is the most tactical because it hits our generation where it hurts the most. They don't necessarily have a problem with the generic God and all the evidence we keep sending them, they'll keep rejecting just like Romans said. So what I like to do is address the fool in their folly. I like to catch them in their craftiness. I like to show them that what they're doing is actually nonsense and tear down their arguments and pretensions. So presuppositional apologetics is a basic heart commitment. And what that means is presuppositional. If you just look up that word in the dictionary, it's what you presuppose. It's what you have in your heart before you start the argument. And we all have presuppositions. And so oftentimes when you're arguing with people over worldviews, we're not getting to the heart of the matter because it doesn't matter how much you show them, they're going to see it through their worldview. So take a fossil, and we're debating evolution versus creationism. The evolutionist is going to always see the fossil as billions and billions of years old, that it came about through random chance and survival of the fittest, etc. But the Christian's going to see it as a creature made by God just a few thousand years ago, more than likely died in a worldwide flood. So we can argue over that fossil all day long, but until we address our worldviews, we will not be able to get to the heart of the matter. Now, some people say, well, let's just go to science. But what you're going to find out in presuppositional apologetics is that science can't be proven with science. You have to have a presupposition that science works. Mm, did it just get deep for some of you? Because that's where the heart of the matter is. Some may say, well, let's use reason. Well, if you're starting to follow me in the class, what do we want to ask somebody who says, well, let's just use reason? 
you want to ask them, where does reason come from? Why do you presuppose that you can use this cantaloupe size organ in your skull to actually figure out things about life in the external world? Why can thoughts be relative to an external world? See, these are basic heartfelt commitments and the Christian needs to address them because we're really the only ones, as you will study further in this book, the Christian worldview, even compared to other religions, is the only one that can give justification for reason and science and morality and the universe itself. So think about this from our book about what presuppositional apologetics mean. I had to go you know, in, into our chapters ahead to get there because this is an introduction. I wanted to have you at least hear it a few times. So next week we'll be going over this more in depth, but today I want to whet your appetite for it and help give you some groundwork as you start your reading. For the Christian, that commitment is to God as revealed in his word. So our presupposition is there is a God and he has spoken. While we maintain our ultimate commitment we cannot accept as true or right anything that commits uh, that conflicts with that commitment. So we come to the table saying there is no way that there cannot be a God and that he hasn't spoken. Now, somebody may say you're close minded. Uh, you're arguing in a circle. That's the very next thing I'll be getting into next is some of the attacks uh, that presuppositional apologetics gets. But what you're going to find out is that everybody has to pick a place to stand. And this is going to be the best place to stand. Trust me, you don't want to try to stand on anything else. It's God and God said. Uh, the next thing that we can understand about presuppositional apologetics is if we adopt the word of God as our ultimate commitment, our ultimate standard, our ultimate criterion of truth and falsity, which means by it will prove things false, God's word then becomes our presupposition. That is to say, since we use it to evaluate all other beliefs, we must regard it as more certain than any other beliefs. Okay, so put it together. What is presuppositional apologetics? It's doing apologetics, defense of the faith, with the presupposition that there is a God and he has spoken in his word. In his word... Christ is risen from the dead. In his word, he's going to judge sinners one day, and heaven and hell are real places, right? So those are our foundations. Now, before I get to this, I just want you to understand the other approaches may have benefits, and sometimes people may want to show evidence for the resurrection of the dead, like we have seen in the Bible that they did. Or they may want to use the approaches that we saw the early apologists do of the Christian church, start off with a generic God speaking to the Greek pagans and then move them to the Christian God through truth. But ultimately, they still were presuppositionalists. Why? Because they believed there was a God and his word was true. Now, let's look to misunderstandings, and then once I get through this, I'll take some questions, because this is where we may be before we watch a few of our uh, videos here. But uh, not only do non-Christians sometimes have a problem with this approach, but also Christians can have a problem with this approach. So those from the classical approach or those from the evidential approach may say that uh, we're not doing this right. We're not giving the believer enough room to really take on uh, a new position. We're almost insulting them in a sense. 
And uh, one of the first things they bring against us is that we are question begging, which is a fallacy of logic, which is assuming which what assuming what you want to prove. Now, let me give you an example of what question begging is in logic. A is true because A is true. That's what it means to argue in a circle. I'm right because I said I'm right. God is God because he said he's God. Hmm, take that, atheist. Well, now they just look at us and laugh, and they literally think we're the foolish ones. Now, is that true that we're arguing in a circle? But before we get to arguing in a circle, let me just give you what a typical deductive argument looks like. Now, remember, this will involve philosophy in this class. So let me show you a typical deductive argument. You can study and get videos online between the difference between induction and deduction. Deduction is what we do more with uh, premise-based, not, not uh, premise-based, but uh, more to do with word logic, thought logic, and induction is more of what we do science with. Um, and that word may come to my mind of what I'm trying to think of, thought-based, concepts. There we go, with our concepts, okay? And then induction is how we do science. And let me just say this right here. I was supposed to say this at the introduction, but I forgot. Uh, I am in no way a philosopher. This is like the circle of knowledge for me. The moment the dot hit the board and I said I was going to teach this and I started to learn a little bit and that dot got bigger, the more the circumference got bigger. And that's what I don't know. So the more that I know in this subject, just like Einstein says, in all knowledge, it's the more you don't know. I just have a little dot on the board. And as I'm learning with you, and even in this book that we have by Frame, John Frame, he says thank you to his students because he learned with them. My master's degree is in Christian education. I specialize in Christian ministry and biblical studies. So philosophy is a bit outside of my realm. I do general apologetics well. That means I can show how the Bible uh, refutes the arguments of other faiths and religions. But when it comes to presuppositional apologetics, evidentialism, and a classic approach, and all of the history of these people and the PhDs and the philosophers, uh, you just have to go beyond me and read your textbook, look at the footnotes, get, get the information. But I will be learning with you. Let's put it that way. Okay, so a typical deductive argument, which is not circular, which is what people are looking for in arguments, is something like this by Plato. Premise one, all men are, are mortal. All men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. So if you see, we did not question beg. We didn't get around the question by asserting it again. We didn't argue in a circle proving what we wanted to prove. We started off making these concepts reality by bringing facts to the, to the, to the premises. So we, men actually exist in the real world, but here's the concept. They're mortal, and so we know all the men that we have seen have always died, okay? They don't live on forever. So now I can point to someone who is a man like Socrates and I can say, well, Socrates is a man. He's not a woman. Th these people in the Greek and Plato's day didn't have 21st century surgeons, uh, you know, gender bending surgeons, whatever. Come on. Uh, they could look and say, that's a man. Socrates is a man. Well, now the conclusion follows from the two correct premises. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. 
If your premises are true in deductive argumentation, your conclusion will always have to be true if it's stated correctly. Now, it can be stated wrong, and premises can be wrong. But if you follow logic, logic works in sequences, and the premises, if they are correct, and the conclusion is stated right, it always follows. Now, the moment we get into this with the atheist or someone that's a Christian that says we shouldn't argue even with unbelievers this way because it's, it's, it's circular reasoning, we need to point to them that everyone argues in circles when it comes to their finite nature and trying to have a starting point for an argument. There is no one that can start without a supposition, without something they're already presuming to be true. Now, do you understand why presuppositional apologetics is so important? What we're saying is, if you hold to the idea that logic is how we gain truth, then all of us have to admit we have a presupposition that is circular before we come. But not all circular arguments are fallacious. So let me give you an example of a fallacious argument. If you try to prove science with science, you're going to have a fallacious argument because you can't prove science with science. How can you prove a methodology called science by doing experiments? You can't. All experiments will do is show you that a scientist, a person, can use a methodological approach called induction. Induction is the method of science, where you take a group of things or a group of tests, you test them, come up with a hypothesis, and then you come up with something that would be a theory, the closest thing to truth. But how do you know in science that science even works? How do you know that you are even going to have the same universe you're living in today be there tomorrow, uniformity. How do you know that you even know the numbers that you're looking at? Maybe the numbers are an illusion because you're a brain in a vat and someone is making you think you're doing science, but you're really in the matrix. You couldn't prove that. So the one who says science proves science just argued in a fallacious circle. So not all presuppositions are the same. Or if someone tries to use reason to prove reason, just think about that. The moment I use reason to prove reason, I have already become fallacious because if my reasoning wasn't correct, I could never use it to do something correct. In other words, a broken sundial or a broken instrument, a broken compass will always be broken. All of its readings will be broken. And so it's like you have AIDS in your blood and you're trying to do a blood transfusion to heal somebody with AIDS. You will always infect them with the faulty presupposition. So circularity is only good in logic if, and this comes from our book, if it's in a system used to properly justify the argumentation of ultimate criteria. The only way we can have an argument for anything is if we start with a valid presupposition, which may seem circular, yes, that's true, but it has to be there for everything else to work. So do we start with science? No, science cannot prove science. First of all, science is not even a thing it's a methodology. Scientists do the science. 
Could reason prove reason? No, because you don't have any way to test your reason. How would you know a yardstick is actually measured correctly unless you have a correct yardstick to compare it to? If you're using your reason to prove your reason, you never know if you're reasoning in truth. And so what is our circular but basic premise for all of our knowledge? What is our presupposition, which is the only one that can be Found that, that can be proven true because everything else leads to nonsense. And what's our foundation to know everything else we know? That is the Christian worldview. Now look at it like this. Premise one, whatever God says is true. God says he is truth. Premise two, conclusion, therefore, it is true that God is truth. You have that basically as your foundation presupposition, the only other way to have a presupposition would be something like this. This would be the only alternative. Premise one, whatever reason says is true. Premise two, reason said it was true. Conclusion, therefore, it is true that reason is true. Now do you see the problem? The only way we can ever start the conversation is if we have a true foundation. And yes, it will be circular because from that, everything else comes. Without it, we can't do anything. So how would we know logic if there wasn't a God? We couldn't say we only know it by reason because how do we know our reasoning is correct? How do we know that science is correct if there isn't a God? We would be mindless animals. We would have no understanding unless there was a God who was enabled to give us his image, the Imago Dei in Latin, in creation for us to share in his truth. Now, let me just say this lastly, and then I'll take some questions before I get to uh, some of these uh, things on uh, theism, uh, before I get to our, uh, our videos, rather. The last uh, thing that we have come against us is fideism, which basically means it's a fallacy of faith. You're asking people now to have faith. So, um, uh, let, let's look at what maybe the classical Christian will say. They'll say, you know what? I agree with you. We can't know anything without God. But you telling the atheist that he can't know nothing without God is not going to help him because all he's going to do is say, I can have reason to prove that these things are true. And I don't know where it comes from. And I don't need faith. I can just use reason. And so the Christian will say, now you're making them think that faith is your God of the gaps, like because he can't explain reason, you're now just inserting something mysterious and it's called faith and it makes an error because it gives him nothing substantial to actually believe what you just said was true because he could, uh, someone else could insert, it's the boogeyman that makes reason reasonable. It's the, the, it's the flying spaghetti monster that makes logic work, you know? So they think we're saying that somehow just blind faith will make you understand everything. And so it becomes what they call fideism, the error of uh, baseless faith, what we would call a wishing well kind of faith, throwing a quarter in or a, a, a irreasonable faith where faith is against reason. And you'll hear this sometimes from even Christians like uh, faith is irrational. You know, faith doesn't have to have reason or logic, you know. Well, the Bible says God can't lie. 
and whatever is not of truth is a lie, and God is truth, so that means God is logical, so that means God can't ever be illogical. What God is to us is unconventional. God to us is not our wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways, as heavens are higher than the earth, but he's never illogical. So meaning if we would see the Red Sea with Moses or any other miracle in the Bible through God's eyes, it would be perfectly reasonable to us. And I give those examples in church, and you've probably heard me say it, that if I in a cartoon can draw characters to have powers to do different things like they do in video games, then why can't God do that in the world he created? See, there's nothing irrational or unreasonable about miracles when you insert God into the equation. It's his creation. He controls it. So let us um, attack this position real quick. So if they say, well, you just have blind faith, we attack right back and say, hold on, hold on. All positions have faith such as faith that the universe exists and we're not in the matrix. Can you prove that? Faith to believe that you exist and you're not a character in someone's dream. Can you prove that one? Faith to believe that other minds exist and that you're not the only real person in existence, which is actually a philosophical belief called solipsism, which is you're the only one in reality. Everybody else is a virtual world. They're virtual people. Come on. Faith to believe that everything will exist tomorrow or in the next second as it does right now and that it won't vanish. In other words, you have faith that the laws of nature will be conformed. Okay, so does everybody have faith? Absolutely. Just like everybody has suppositions, everybody has faith, but not all faith is reasonable. Not all suppositions are true. I hope you're learning this. Cornelius Van Til, which was one of the more modern promoters of the presuppositional movement, he said the Christian's position is not merely just as good as the non-Christian's position. So in other words, we both don't need to leave a position of faith and debate the evidence or leave a position of faith and see who's more rational. No, ours is not just as good as theirs. Christianity is the only position that does not per se take away the foundation for intelligibility and science and for philosophical procedure. Christianity is the only rational faith. So therefore, Christians have the best reasons to believe and trust in what they do. We have, as William Lane Craig said, reasonable faith because it's based on God and his word. What did God say? In, in the scriptures, in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, this, the, the passage of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen, what is seen rather, was not made out of what was visible. So it just comes down to those simple presuppositions that help us to understand our faith as we look at the goals again, and now helps us confront non-biblical worldviews. That is what presuppositional apologetics is. It's a defense of the faith, going to the basic heart commitments of people. We're challenging theirs, comparison to ours. They say we argue in a circle, 
We ask them where logic came from. They say their God is better than our God. We say, how do you even know what a God is? We hear them say that all people have faith. We say, yes, but not all faith is reasonable. Let us test your faith by God and his word. Now, that may be an oversimplification for some, but trust me, God and his word will stand the test. People can attack God and we'll have answers. They'll attack the Bible and the transmission. That's one of their most popular attack. But by God's grace, we will stand on that ground. On the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus said, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice is the wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the storms and the winds came, he stood. And the one who did not build his house on the rock fell. And great was that crash. Okay. I know there may be a, a bunch of questions that you guys may have, so let me open it up now for discussions. Uh, please feel free to share any questions you may have. Any questiones? I have a couple. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, so, so logic essentially is reasoning of the principles of, of validity, right? Yeah. Mediaism um, is essentially saying that you're basing what you're saying upon faith only, solely upon faith, um, not necessarily upon I, I guess for lack of terminology, religiosity, not necessarily upon that, but upon um, faith only. Yeah, a blind faith. A blind faith. Yeah, okay. so we're, it's like to them, we just said, we can reason because the flying spaghetti monster said we could reason. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, where does your reason come from? And when they say, I don't know, and then we say, but do you trust your reason? Do you have faith, belief in what you don't see? Because you don't see reason walking around like letters on Sesame Street. There's an R, there's an E, they're singing. So you have a faith in reason. Yeah, okay, you have a faith, faith that it works. Yeah, you have a faith that it will work tomorrow. Yeah, okay, where does your faith come from? Where does it abide in? Now, they're forced to say either I don't know or it rests in reason itself. We come back and say, yes, we have faith, but ours rests in God. Uh, okay. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and trust me, this is what the book is going to discuss, by the way. This is not to be the end all of the discussion. And I've been doing this for 20 years, guys. And uh, it is not something that you're going to have all down. This is the beauty of knowledge and wisdom. The circle of knowledge should be a good example. All of us should embrace. The more you know will be more questions of things you don't know. And this is what the book is going to take time to explain. Trust me, it's, it's not going to be uh, something that you may necessarily uh, always agree with or always see as clear. But if you take the time to start thinking through it, I think you'll come to the same conclusion that I have and that many, many others have. And I'm going to play you some great videos 
that I think are going to make this even more clear. And I have to admit, they're much better than me. I may be a good preacher by God's grace. This is not false humility, but I'm telling you, when it comes to philosophy and science, this is what these guys do, and they ring the bell. So we'll get to those videos in just a moment. But Daryl, does that help you understand the difference between, basically think of fideism as, as a blind faith versus a reasonable faith? That's exactly how that's that's exactly how I was thinking about it. That okay, that sums it up really well. Yeah, and so what we say back, even because in the book you'll see if you look at my locations there, this was actually by Paul Copen, uh, accusations that he brought against us as a Christian. He's one of our best scholars on Old Testament theology. He he wrote the book Is God a Moral Monster? explaining to us why there were times when the Bible commanded the Israelites to, to do genocide, to kill nations, and so forth. And he was in the blog of the Gospel Coalition, basically attacking presuppositionalism. And so it does get attacked from both Christians and non-Christians alike in those two main ways, that we're arguing in a circle and that we're almost making our position look like blind faith. But we're really not. And I want you guys to be uh, understanding of what some of the thoughts you may even have as you go through it. Cause I know I thought about it. Like if I just walk up to somebody and say, I believe the Bible because the Bible says so I'm going to get rocked pretty hard, you know, or if I just tell them God is the explanation to everything, I'm going to look like I'm the most unscientific person out there. But what we're doing is showing them in both instances, everybody has presuppositions. God is the only sustainable one. And everybody has faith. Once again, faith in God and his word, only sustainable one. Everything else will be brought down to nonsense. And you're going to hear that a lot, that the only other uh, reasonable, using logic, the only other option is to reduce the world to nonsense, unknowability, uh, foolishness, as we've already heard. Any other questions before we go on? Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> hey, Pedro, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so like just on to, to kind of go uh, with that, the last thing you were saying, uh, and, and this may this may go hand in hand with what you were saying lastly, but uh, th there was a time that I got into a conversation with a guy who was uh, a neurosurgeon, uh, and we started getting into something that sounded uh, really philosophical, uh, where he kind of started going into the arguments of, like I think we got into an argument that got to the point where it was like, you know, are we even really here right now? Yeah. You know what I mean? Where he was kind of debasing like the reality. He was changing the idea and the uh, of what reality was. Yeah. Uh, how would you properly, and I want to make sure I, I say this word, uh, properly uh, handle that uh, discussion? Yeah. So we're going to get to that in the videos. And that's great that you said that because that comes right up. Yeah. What they will have to do, which is you will see it in these videos. It is unbelievable. They will have to start denying reality, just like we actually said right here. Uh, we all have faith that we're in a real universe and not in the matrix. You'll even see like Elon Musk right now, the, uh, the founder of uh, Tesla cars. He thinks we're in a virtual reality. He says it's probably only a one in a billionth chance that the world is actually a literal world right now. So they will give up reality to continue to deny God. That is the place of foolishness that they're driven to. Well, what you say back to them is the most simplest thing is, how do you know that? And so now their faith will be shown to be shallow and nothing more than a wish 
And they're the ones that accused us of having a, a make-believe kind of faith. We'll say, look, you have to now wish upon a star that you're in a matrix to get out of the accountability of God. So why don't you come back down to the real world and admit you are here, you think, therefore you are, and now deal with the world as it is. That's how I would start off. The second thing that I would say is, even in the place of a virtual world, all of these things, you still have explained nothing. You've only backed it up one more cause, uh, one more uh, uh, place. So I'm not in this world, I'm in that world. Okay, so wherever that world is, why do laws of logic work and get translated into this world? Why do morality and, and uh, laws of conformity to nature work in this world? So it's like I create a Sims virtual reality on my computer that doesn't disprove that there is a world here that I'm creating it from, okay? So you, you can say I'm in a virtual world, but why in this virtual world are there laws of logic? Why are there conformity? And why is it we can never conceive of breaking these laws? Like you can't conceive of a married bachelor. You can't break the law of non-contradiction. I don't care in what virtual world you're in. Think of the DiCaprio movie. Uh, what was the movie he was in the dream state? Inception? Inception. Does anybody remember the movie Inception? Yeah. Yes. That's Inception. Right. Okay. Inception. Thank you. It doesn't matter how many dream worlds you go into. What follows you in every dream world? God and his word, logic and the laws of nature. Now, that will be another discussion of what happens in dream worlds, you know, when things stand up on their edge and do things. But you'll notice it can never contradict the laws of nature only in the sense that uh, laws of nature can only be broken if, uh, if they have a supernatural cause and an explanation for them, and our dreams have an explanation for them, which is, I'm not actually flying, I'm thinking I'm flying. So it's, a, it's still applying, even though we're playing make-believe. If that made sense, I, I don't want to get confused there. But even in the dream world, what looks like laws breaking is not actually laws breaking because the dream world is not a real world. And that's the explanation. That's the difference, really, between a real world and a make-believe world. This make-believe worlds can't break the laws of nature. Uh, real worlds can't break the laws of nature. But you can imagine silly things, you know. But here's the thing about logic. You can never imagine an illogical thing. Now, let me go to this and we'll hold on to some more questions because I want to get to these videos. Uh, here's thoughts from the foreword quickly, and then I'm going to get to the videos. Here's how it ties into discipleship. And I'm so glad that I saw this in the foreword. This was amazing, man, that they actually had this talk about discipleship in there because our church is so big in discipleship. Being a disciple, he said, the Bible has instructions and insights that affect every area of life, including apologetics. Our conduct is not the basis for our salvation, but it's influenced by our salvation. So apologetics is a part of the command of God, and it should flow from our life, defending our faith and as we make disciples. So if you care about making disciples, you should care about disciple, uh, apologetics. Here's the next thing that he says. A Christian believer is not supposed to just lie still, relax, and enjoy the salvation already given to them. He is to be an active, he's to be active in serving the Lord like an athlete or a farmer working hard. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Isn't that awesome? It applies to us making disciples. Why did I come up? Why did I have a passion for apologetics? 
because I was out making disciples. As I was out preaching the gospel on the streets, I began to run into arguments. I had to defend the faith. Then I had to tear down the strongholds of thoughts and pretensions against the knowledge of God, right? Because I'm winning souls, making disciples. We're not to be off duty. We are to be in the great commission. So apologetics, it's as clear as a command as everything else, as we learn in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and onward, that we are to give that answer as we're preaching. Isn't that powerful? Here's another thing. So discipleship has implications for apologetics. And I love that he used a female here because I just thought of Rachel. Rachel's literally in her nursing outfit, you know, today, and she's listening to us. And this is beautiful. If Sue is a Christian believer, let's use Rachel. If Rachel is a Christian believer, she must remain a believer and act like a believer when she's in discussions with non-Christians. She cannot pretend to be religiously neutral when she evaluates religious or philosophical claims or discusses miracles or discuss who Jesus Christ is or discuss the basis for moral standards. She cannot be neutral because God has already given her truth in Jesus Christ. She ought not to betray what God has given her. So that's why we never leave our ground of surety. We never leave our ground of God and his word to have discussions with people. We come with our presuppositions and we readily admit them. We readily admit where our faith lies and we ask them to do the same thing. Have you thought about why you have reason? Have you thought about why there's a universe and why there are laws that are fixed to the universe? Have you thought about why things are conformed and uniformed in the world? Have you thought about morality? You'll even hear this in one of the videos, that a man gives up thinking that molesting children is wrong because he doesn't want to admit objective moral truth. He wants to believe in subjective moral truth. And the preacher asked him, the street witnesser, Sai, asked him, well, do you then believe it's okay to molest children. And he said, I would think about it. I would consider it. And he literally stops the video and says, everybody get this. And that's what they'll do. They'll go to insanity. Did not the Bible say this? They suppress the truth in their wickedness. They will go to folly. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. This is what they'll do. Um, here's the idea of what many think of, of religious neutrality, that somehow we're both having the same reason, the same faith, and we'll figure it out from there. As some Christians try to do with just evidence and say, let's just look at evidence. We both have reason. We both have faith. We'll discuss that later. We agree that, you know, we have, uh, you know, some reason and faith, but let's go on. No, 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 no. Don't leave the place of where you're at. Let them know they have no place to stand because many people are tempted to picture a discussion in apologetics as a religiously neutral search for truth. Everyone supposedly starts off uncommitted and is trying to find out whether God exists and which of the world religions might be true. According to this way of thinking, it's most important that everyone should be unbiased. You'll hear that, unbiased, neutral, uncommitted. But the Bible indicates that this picture is completely unrealistic. It contradicts the actual situation in which we live. The actual situation is, is that some people have been saved by grace through faith in God, while others are still lost. Some are standing on solid ground, as Jesus said, and others are not. Just stop and ask yourself the question right now. Did Jesus ever go around trying to make people believe? Did Jesus ever go around trying to prove that he was real? 
No, every time he went somewhere, he went with the foundation of who he was and what God had said, what the word was from the Father, right? Not always lead to God. Christ is the only way to God. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is salvation in no one else, for by no other name is given to men under heaven by which we can be saved. So do you see that this is the apologetic approach of Paul? Even when he goes to Athens to the philosophers, he says, you have a statue to the unknown God. I know who he is. Let me tell you who he is. He doesn't say, let us both try to figure it out. He says, I'll tell you who he is because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you give people the word and it comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's able to be like seed planted in their heart. It's up to them whether or not now they believe, but the word will do its job. The word will do its job. And then lastly, what is needed is discipleship. Of course, we need to be calling to discipleship those who, excuse me, what is needed is discipleship. Of course, we need to be calling to discipleship those who are caught in the prison of unbelief and darkness. But we also need to grow our, as ourselves as disciples. And the way we do this is by understanding God and the world. So we're calling others to discipleship, but we ourselves are growing. Okay, now I'm about ready to get into some of these videos, which I think now are going to really set it up for you guys. But uh, any questions, just real briefly, that you may have before we get into these these uh, videos here? Yeah, for one. Hey, man, what's up? Good. Um, what is the? We are a Bible over natural knowledge approach, correct? Yes, we're believing the Bible over natural knowledge. We think that the Romans 1, 18 and onward description that Paul gave is that says everyone's already been given natural knowledge through creation and conscience. And if they're still lost when we meet them, it's because they have suppressed it. Okay, anybody else? Okay, let's go to these videos now. You guys are going to love this. Let's start with Greg Bonson. He was a student of uh, Van Til. He's famous for his debates in the uh, 70s and 80s. He would rock uh, atheists, and you're going to start seeing this now. Trust me, this is not just nincompoop stuff here. This is the real deal, okay, guys? I want you to watch this. This is a real short one, but I'll get you some longer ones here. You can find them online as well. Look up Greg Bonson. Uh, his name is in our notes, but let me get you this right here. And uh, this is kind of that uh, thug life thing, so it's going to have a little funny ending. But go ahead and watch it right here. Reform thug life. And so if naturalism is true, then the person who's propounding it is propounding it. Why? Because his or her brain has required them by the laws of physics and chemistry and biology to say this sort of thing. It's not as though they have the freedom and self-awareness to think about different theories evaluate evidence and make a choice as to which is right or wrong they just have to say whatever they have to say and that's why the irony is that a naturalist would promote naturalism and try to tell people it's true you should believe that and not supernaturalism the answer is if naturalism is true so that your brain is just working on the laws of physics then you have no reason to believe naturalism is true it's just the laws of physics requiring you to say that which is just to say if naturalism is true, there's no reason to say that naturalism is true. 
You're just forced to say that, just like I'm forced by the laws of physics to say the opposite. Unbelievers cannot even account for why we argue with each other then, can they? On their assumptions, there's no argument because there's no freedom to choose the truth over against error. There's just the laws of physics governing my brain to say and do whatever it does. That was funny right there. So, do you understand what just happened there? What he's saying is, if all the brain is, is a natural organ, and there's no mind, then all we have is the brain doing brain fizz, like a pot being shaken up, and you'll hear this a lot with presuppositionalists. It's a good way to describe it to people. It's brain fizz. So there really is no truth. There's no right or wrong. So why are we even arguing? All we are is just brain fizz. I'm just spouting out stuff my brain's telling me to say, and you're spouting off stuff your brain's telling you to say. We're animals of instinct. And literally, that's what they believe. There is no such thing as free will in the evolutionist mindset. Alex Rosenberg, on the Atheist Guide to Reality, along with Sam Harris and the others, deny free will. You are a creature of habit based on brain chemicals. So when someone says, I believe this, I think this, it's actually meaningless. It is literally the brain making them say that. They did not have a choice, and therefore there's not even a point to going on in the discussion until they admit that one of us can actually change opinions and actually learn something and not just spout out uh, things that has, our brain is making us to say. Let me give you another one now. This is from Sai's uh, movie that he put out, like a documentary that's called uh, How to Answer a Fool. And I think you guys will like this because it's got some cool music to it and some highlight clips. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now imagine somebody came up to you and said, I don't believe in words. You'd think that he was a fool. You wouldn't pull out a dictionary and give him evidence, and you wouldn't believe him. Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. We don't think they're a fool. We give them evidence, and we believe them. When the Bible calls them fools, something has gone wrong. God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, according to that verse, who needs proof that God exists? We all want Nobody. Nobody. You think I'm bringing them to Christ? I think I'm exposing the folly of denying Christ. Okay, so you're judging people, is what you're saying. Is it wrong to judge, sir? Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, only, God, God, only, God, only God God is the final judge, so not you. Judge? Of course So what is. I'm doing is wrong. Yes, 100%. Stop judging me, sir. <laughs> okay. How do you know your reasoning's valid? I don't. That's right. So if you don't know your reasoning's valid, would it not follow that you can't know anything to be true? Yes. Okay, so that's the problem. You could be wrong about everything you claim to know, it follows that you know nothing. Yes. Oh, but absolutely. the problem is you do know things. No, I don't think so. The only well, thing I do know is that I know nothing. Do you know that? Yeah. That's two. 
I'm always open to everything. Are you I, open to the fact that child molestation might be right? Yeah. You're open to that? that, yeah, that sure. So, so child molestation could be right? It could be. You want to get that on camera, guys? Anybody at home, never hire him as a babysitter. <laughs> I live in the world of I don't know. That's right. That's, you know that you live in that world. I know for a fact that I live in that world. See, now that's not I, a world of I don't know. That's it. I know I live in that world. See, that's contradictory. It is contradictory. That's very good. Uh, <laughs> all right, that's a good point. Um, oh, isn't that something? He lives in the world of I don't know. Well, do you know that you live in a world of I don't know? Yeah. Well, you just contradicted yourself. Do you see how the fool is caught in their folly? This is not just for the non-Christian worldview. This is for any worldview. Now, what I want to do is raise it up a level in uh, scholarly uh, work. I'm going to bring you now to Oxford mathematician uh, Lennox, John Lennox, one of the smartest Christians we have on the planet right now. He may not be fully a presuppositionalist. Let me just say this now. Many apologists will use the presuppositional argument as one of many arguments and keep going on with a classical approach. But as we said before, they themselves know that it's only uh, knowable, truth is only knowable through presuppositions of, of God and his word and by faith in him. But uh, they may use evidence and so forth. But uh, John Lennox uh, is one of the most brilliant men we have. And listen to how he rocks the worldview of scientism and naturalism, materialism. This idea that all we have is what science can prove. All that exists is what the material world is. All that is is the natural world. Listen to him describe the problem that you run into when you, feel, uh, when you believe that way. And also Alvin Planinga wrote a book where the problem really lies with naturalism as, as one of the top philosophers of our day. And he's a Christian as well, Alvin Plantinga. He did great work on the problem of evil. But let's listen to John Lennox now. What I'm going to do now is to just say something about what I believe is one of the most important parts of the contemporary debate. And that is thinking about thinking. Mathematics, which is my field, is a fascinating thing. So I just wanted you to think about this. He's, he's going to talk about thinking about thinking. Mathematics is a language. It's a highly compressed language. And it has been used to express some of the most fundamental ideas in theoretical physics particularly, upon which even if we don't begin to understand them, so much of contemporary life depends. And to think that equations like these have great value in helping our understanding raises questions in thinking minds. Of course, the mind that thought the most was probably that of Albert Einstein. And he was clever enough to see that there was an issue. The only incomprehensible thing about the universe, he wrote, is that it is comprehensible. How is it 
wrote Eugen Wigner, Nobel Prize winner for physics, in a famous paper much loved by mathematicians called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. It's unreasonable, isn't it? He suggested that here's a mathematician and she's thinking in here and she comes up with an equation and it appears to describe something of what we would normally think of as external reality. How does that work? How is that possible? And uh, Wigner wrote, in fact, the enormous usefulness of mathematics as something bordering on the mysterious. There's no rational explanation for it. This is his view, of course. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Okay, I see us running short on time. I do want to get to hear from you guys for the last remaining minutes. Uh, so I'll leave these to you with the links that I provided in the notes. You have the rest of uh, uh, Lennox's video if you want to watch. I actually queued it up there for you in the link. And then you have Dr. Jason Lyle from the uh, uh, Creation Museum talking about secular uh, presuppositions versus biblical presuppositions. So I would encourage you. Uh, to take a look at that. Basically, what it's going to come down to with, with uh, what he's saying here, uh, what Lennox was just saying, is that the smartest minds, now you got to get this, I, I have them on Big Think, TED Talks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the smartest minds know what Lennox is saying is true, which is, it is so in, it is so uh, unreasonable how reasonable mathematics are. Uh, the environment, uh, he says here, the environment usefulness of mathematics is something broadened, uh, what can't, uh, excuse me, the enormous usefulness of mathematics, the enormous, enormous usefulness of mathematics is something bordering on the mysterious. There is no rational explanation for it. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Okay, so when someone says to us, well, math will figure it out, well, science will say you haven't even read the greatest scientists yet. You haven't even listened to the greatest mathematicians, the physicists, all of these guys, because they know exactly what we're telling you is true. There is no explanation in their mind for why it works. Why does it work, Einstein? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He said that was the most bizarre thing to him, that the world actually worked, that it actually worked. I mean, these guys are not dummies. I hope you get that and have some confidence as you study presuppositional apologetics. This was Albert Einstein. The only uncomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And so John Lennox goes on. He says he talks to these guys and he says, uh, how do you know truth? And they say, well, through science. And he says, how do you do science? And they say, well, with my brain. And he says, where does your brain come from? 
And they said, well, it came through evolution in biology over millions and millions of years. And then he'll pause and he'll look at him and he'll say, and you trust it? <laughs> How would you trust something that came here by random processes and chance? Why would you say that is your foundation? You can't. It is nonsense, literally nonsense. Okay, so we got about six minutes left. I'm looking at the chat line. Uh, go ahead, give me some of your guys' thoughts. I'll remain 15 minutes after class. Uh, the assignment is to read chapter one for next week's discussion. Uh, but come on, let's get some uh, feedback here from you guys before we roll out. Uh, I just wanted to know who was the name. Uh, what was the name of that one man who uh, I think he was? Uh, he was the one that was on the street, uh, the street evangelizing. Who was that? Yes, again? yes, that is number five in your notes under videos. How to answer a fool by Psy Ten Grudingate. For sure. And by the way, there's an awesome hip hop song called Presup by Ivy Connerly. And uh, it's a really good song. It's like how you know what you know. You gave that up a long time ago, bro, when you said there was no God. You know, I mean, this guy's rapping, dude. It's really, really cool. He has a great way of putting it to words. Anybody else? Um, what, what we use, what is the main difference between classical and um, position is it more because of the circular circular reasoning where we already affirm like we exist we already affirm yes we, there's no debate about that exactly yeah sorry to interrupt you but that is exactly it yeah the classical approach says we will meet you on a neutral ground with reason and, you know, faith in the conformity of the world, laws of nature. And now we're going to go to the best explanation of those things. And so William Lane Craig is a great classical apologist. And you got to remember, I'm not a sassy pre-sub. Some of these guys, you know, sigh can be sassy. And, and a lot of these guys will make everybody else look inferior. I don't agree with that. But uh, I, I do agree that precept is better. I just don't put the other people down. But for example, how William Lane Craig will debate is he'll come to a debate. He'll take all of the foundations that the secular opponent agrees with, the laws of logic, the laws of nature, et cetera. And then he'll bring out five proofs of God or evidences for God. And then he'll say, this is the way the world is. This is the evidence that points back to God. Can you give a better explanation for this evidence other than God? So explain to us why the world is designed the way it is. Explain to us the first cause. Why, why is there something rather than no, nothing? Like Leibniz cosmological argument is a famous one by William Lane Craig. The law of intentionality, how minds can set themselves on intentional things that we're not just brains operating on instinct. And so he'll set those up and then he'll basically or he'll argue on probability. What is the probability of this being God or something else? And that's when you're dealing with primarily, obviously, atheists and agnostics. But uh, we don't only want to be presuppositional with those kind of people. We also want to be that with a Muslim. We want to hold up the true God, the true Jesus, the word, and show the error in their worldview. Because if their worldview was true, it would reduce to nonsense as well. 
And you'll get into that a little bit later on in the book, but all worldviews reduce to nonsense. A couple other questions in the last minutes we have. I'm so glad you guys are here. I hope I get some good feedback. Some of you guys will stay after and tell me what you thought about the class. Uh, I'm always here 15 minutes before, 15 minutes after. So uh, anybody else? A couple questions. Which uh, stance, I suppose, is the right way to put it? Uh, do you take, are you more of the evidential or the classical apologist? No, I'm a presuppositionalist. So I'm going to use this as my foundation to do everything else. But as you'll learn in the book, it's not necessarily an either or. We will give evidence and we will use the same arguments that Thomas Aquinas and others came up with. Um, I just, in this generation and the way it works and the way the scriptures line up, I just personally believe that going right for the presuppositions right off the bat sets up the gospel so wonderfully, man. It just humbles the unbeliever, humbles the, uh, the person of a different faith, and it just shows them the truth. I mean, you see it right there. I mean, where else can you go? You, you'll, you'll expose the heart you know, by really just rocking their minds in a sense, you know? Mm. So yes, that's why we're, uh, and I don't say this teasingly, but you know, it's kind of a tease, but that's why we're doing a class on presuppositional apologetics. No, yeah, I, I mean, that's what I'm, I believe. I'm, I'm learning, man. <laughs> it, uh, this is straight, unadulterated knowledge. Come uh, on. Which is really acquiring education, right? And Amen. I think that, uh, this is all really soaking. It's soaking into my into my brain right now. <laughs> Amen. And let me just tell you a quick story. How I didn't even know the name, and I know people have been doing this for years and not even knowing the name. Even some of the main people in this don't use the name presuppositional. It's basically gospel centered apologetics in a sense. Because I remember, like in two thousand and six, when I was doing uh, apologetics on. Uh, stick ham. It was like a YouTube back then where people would get together and debate and different stuff. And I remember getting into a debate with the, uh, the rational response squad and they were doing the blasphemy challenge. If you denied the Holy spirit, they would give you a free t-shirt because they were taking that literally like this unforgivable sin. Well, long story short, just debating with them. I instantly went to the foundations. Like, like, dude, how do you even know what you know? Like, why are you even saying this is not true and true? How do you even have a definition of this? How do you know this? And these are the famous words you'll see come up, phrases in, a, in presuppositional apologetics and those who use that argument. Frank Turek wrote the book, Stealing from God. And he, he shows like everything they use to try to turn against God is really what God has given them. And he uses the same analogy Frank Turek does that Van Til used who is one of the modern voices of the pre-sup movement, which is you have to sit on the lap of God to be able to even slap him in the face. Like if you didn't have the brain he gave you, you couldn't even make the argument uh, that you're trying to make. And so with that, uh, let's have Ashley close us out in prayer. We'll shut off the live feed and do after class hangout for anyone who would like to hang out and ask further questions. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity for us to meet together and learn more about this topic, Lord. I pray that we are strengthened as we read our word throughout the week to put these things together and show it in our ministry and share with others, Lord. 
and let it just be something to strengthen us as disciples for you, God. And until next time, Lord, let us pour into you and learn more and just want to be more in your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.